to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious glimpse into your glorious majesty that clothes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word of truth that is a light to our path. In your goodness and mercy, you chose to redeem a lost and dying world, and by your grace and love, gave us the inspired scriptures through your chosen apostles and prophets. We pray that you would lead and guide our hearts into all truth, and that through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we may have the light and love of Christ, our Savior. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary, for opening us up. And uh, if you would like to uh, open your Bible along with me, if you have one, uh, you can open that to the Gospel of Luke. And if you don't have one, that's totally fine. The uh, scriptures that we're going to be reading together will be on the screen behind me. And if you want to use a phone app or something like that as well, uh, please feel free. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this morning as we continue in our sermon series studying through the Gospel of Luke. I believe we're on part 37 um, and have quite a ways uh, to go. Uh, but this morning in Luke chapter 11, we're going to be, let's see, I think we're going to do somewhere verses 14 all the way through verse 36. It's a lot of text that we're going to cover uh, this morning together, and I'm going to be honest with you, it's um, kind of a weird text. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that from up here, but it's, it's a scripture as you read it, you might go, huh, but what do I do with that? And, and so that's what we're going to do together. We're going to read it, it's God's word, and we're going to study it. And I really do believe that through this text, God has a very timely uh, and important message for us this morning. And the reason for that is because we are going to talk about this. Uh, obviously, we're studying this, but as we study this, we're going to talk about what this is, the scriptures, the Bible, and the role that this should play in our lives and in the life of our church. Uh, at Grace Hill Church, we are a church that affirms what we call the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that this book is God's actual words and that it is without error. Uh, we also believe in what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we believe that this is sufficient, completely sufficient to teach us everything that we need to know 
about who God is and who we are and how we are reconciled to God and how to live our lives and, and everything that we need to know. We believe the scripture is sufficient. Right? As a church, we are committed to sit under the word of God and to hold that up and to say, this is where we learn about God. And so whatever it says, we, we believe, we follow, we trust, all of those things. We are 100% committed to the whole counsel of what God's word says. Yet, there can sometimes be, I want you to hang with me here for a second, there can sometimes be a gap between what we think the word of God says and what the word of God actually says. You know what I'm saying? You guys understand? There can be this gap between what we think the word of God says, and we're committed to the word. We believe in inerrancy and sufficiency. We have this high view of the word of God, and that there can be this gap between what we think it says and what it actually says. And this is true of a lot of things in life, right? Like a couple of weeks ago, my wife is uh, serving in nursery, so I can say this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Kim and I, we are, we are talking about something. We were having one of those friendly debates and arguments uh, about something that had happened before. And uh, I was sure, hey, it, it took place like this. She was sure, no, it took place like this. And we were, we were so much at loggerheads, and it was a friendly debate, that uh, we go, okay, let's put a wager on it. All right, let's put a bet down. And she goes, all right, what do you want to bet? Because I know I'm right. And uh, I said, all right, 30-minute back rub. All right, that's the, and she hates giving me back rubs, absolutely hates it. And so she goes, all right, I'll do that. That's when I knew she was serious. Now, the reality was I knew I was right. I just knew I was right. And so we went and we looked up a few things to go like figure out. And it turned out that I was the one who was right. All right, it's very rare, but I was the one who was right. And so I got the 30-minute back rub. But the thing that Kim kept on saying is, I, I can't believe it. I remember it so differently. Like, like the experience and what's pictured in my head is so different than what actually occurred. There was a gap between what she thought happened and what she remembered happened. This happens in all kinds of places. And it happens even in what we believe about God's word. I've been a pastor for 13 years. I've been preaching God's word for about 10 of those years. So I've preached a lot of Bible, I've studied a lot of Bible, and I even in my growth as a pastor over the years, there are things that I used to believe about what God's word says that, that today I would say have grown and God has shown me and now I, I think something differently because there can be this gap between what we think God's word says and what it actually says. Now here's the deal. The church really struggles with what to do with this. What do we do with this gap? What do we do when we see things in the word of God differently? What do we do when there's different perspectives? This gap splits churches. It, it ends friendships. It distracts the church from its mission, proclaiming the good news of Christ to the people around us. We're going to be, like I said earlier, back in Luke, the gospel of Luke, this history of the life and the teachings of Jesus. And 
one of the things that Luke focuses on is this reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for. And as he's coming, as he arrives, he's bringing with him the kingdom of God. He's breaking into this world with the kingdom of God. But one of the things that Matthew, or sorry, Luke focuses on through his gospel is that the Jews missed it. That the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come and he came and he's bringing the kingdom with them and he's demonstrating the kingdom and the Jews, as it was happening in their midst, missed it because there was a gap. The Jews had a high view of scripture. They studied the scripture. They memorized the scripture as kids, as they grew up. High view of scripture. They were committed to it, but they missed something. There was a gap between what they thought God's word prophesied about the Messiah and what God's word actually said about the Messiah. And in the gospel of Luke, part of Jesus' ministry is helping the Jews see the gap. Like, I love this. Uh, Later on, Luke 24, this is the last chapter of Luke. We'll probably preach this in like three years. Um, Like, last chapter of Luke, I love verse 27. This is after the resurrection, and Jesus is with some, some Jews, and they're kind of, this is on the road to Emmaus, right? And man, these lights, I can't see my Bible right now. Um, It's blue. But anyway, verse 27, uh, Jesus is talking to some Jews, and it says, and beginning with Moses, so the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them, the Jews, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, right? That's what he was doing. He was showing them the gap. Yeah, y'all missed me, but here, let me show you in the scriptures where I am. I love verse 36, as, uh, or verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 32. These Jews, as Jesus was doing this, said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he, Jesus, talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? So this is a big theme in the gospel of Luke. Jesus helping the Jews see the gap. And today in our scripture Jesus is going to admonish them on this topic and and us, I believe, as we read and seek to apply to our lives. And and here's where we're gonna end up. Luke 11, verse 35, this is towards the end of where we'll read. Jesus says this, therefore, be careful lest the light in you insert in what you think God's word says. Be darkness. Be careful, be on guard against this gap. So I want to jump into our text. Like I said, to our odd text this morning, and we'll read it together, see what it has to say to us. So we are going to read Luke 11, verses uh, 14, and I'm going to go through 26 for right now, and then we'll pack, uh, pick it back up in just a bit. So it says this, starting in verse 14, it says, Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. 
But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, or you could call it, you could just say Satan, the prince of demons. While others, to test Jesus, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state, and, um, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, you might read that and go, that's, yet, yeah, Alan, that was a little odd. Um, maybe if you're not new to the scriptures, you would say, yep, that, that's an odd text. What do we do with that? How does that apply to us? One of the things we just need to realize is that in this time and in this culture, it was a much more spiritually active time and culture, right? So a lot of our experience in faith doesn't look like things like these. It doesn't mean it's not true. That's just how things were going, especially with Jesus here in the flesh there. So that's why sometimes it can feel like a disconnect. But I think Jesus is trying to make this point, that there is this kingdom of the world, and that kingdom is led by Satan. And there is a kingdom of God. And the person who sits on the throne of the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And a theme in Luke, as we've already said, has been that Jesus is breaking into this kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God. He has arrived. He's establishing his kingdom. He's teaching about his kingdom. He's demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like. And he's breaking in. He's the stronger man that takes down the guards and comes in with the kingdom of God. And the reality is, is that each and every one of our souls, our souls carry a citizenship. We either belong to the kingdom of this world or we belong to the kingdom of God. And the reality is, is in our sin against God, we have become citizens of the kingdom of this world. And so we're left in this world to, to suffer, to endure the brokenness of this world. I think that's actually what verses 24 to 26, this passage about a spirit leaving but coming back with seven others is all about. In the world, we might try to sweep up our house and keep it in order, but we belong to an evil kingdom. And there is suffering and there is brokenness 
in this world, and we need a new king to come in, to break in, and to rescue us, just like Jesus did by casting that demon out of that particular man. And so I think one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that I'm bringing a kingdom, and I am the only one who can grant your soul citizenship in that new kingdom, right? So Jesus cast this demon out of this man who was mute and heals him. People are marveling, but the Jews are skeptical. They're like, I don't know about this. He must be doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I'm here, I'm pushing Satan and his kingdom back. I'm pushing back the kingdom of this world. I'm here to grant you citizenship into my kingdom, to rescue that, to bring you into my kingdom. So if you're not with me, you're against me. I am the only way that you can be delivered from this world. And what we know, obviously, as we read further in Luke, is that the way that Jesus is going to grant people citizenship in his kingdom is by going to the cross to pay the penalty for their sins so that he can offer them citizenship in his kingdom. But the people, the Jews, who are watching this, listening to all this, they remain skeptical. And they're like, Jesus, we're gonna need more signs from you that this is who you are. We're gonna need more signs from you that you're the Messiah, that you're bringing this kingdom, and that you're not doing these things by the power of Satan, but you're doing it by the power of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. They remain skeptical. Remember, these are people who are committed to the word, high view of their scriptures, spent many of their days memorizing the scriptures. And the one who was prophesied to be the Messiah was standing in their presence, and they're missing it. Yap. Let's keep going in our text. Look at verse 27. As he said these things, A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, a sign that he is the Messiah, But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah, remember Jonah's book in the Old Testament, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Uh, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want a sign that I'm the Messiah? Your sign is the scriptures. This is it, the word of God. They obviously didn't have the New Testament at the time. But that is the sign that you get. Blessed is the one who hears these scriptures and keeps them. 
He says, the queen of Sheba, this is from 1 Kings 10. That's the queen of the south in the text, right? The queen of Sheba heard about this God of Israel, traveled up to see Solomon. Solomon taught her and she believed. Uh, The men of Nineveh, right, who were evil, evil people, they repented when Jonah came and preached to them. A very short sermon if you go read Jonah. And they believed. And Jesus saying, someone greater is here in your midst preaching you the scripture. And you're missing it. There's a gap between what the people think the scripture says and what it actually says. Again, not questioning their doctrine of scripture, but there's a gap. And I think humility would dictate to us this morning that if the the, the Jews with the Messiah in their presence could miss something or have this gap, well, then we're certainly capable too of having a gap as well. We're not better than they are. How does this happen? How does a gap like this occur? How do do the Jews, after everything the Old Testament says about the coming Messiah, how do they miss it? How does something like this happen? Well, it, it happens, we all know this, when a group of people kind of, come up with an interpretation of of what the scripture says, and and that becomes established, and more and more people believe that, and and more and more people are teaching it, and it kind of becomes an established doctrine. And then what begins to occur is that if anyone says, hey, hold on, I, I don't think that's what the scripture says, they get accused of not holding to high view of scripture. Because a big group of people have said, no, this is what the word of God actually says. I, I think we see this happen. I, I think an example that, I've, uh, that we've seen um, in the last maybe 10 to 20 years uh, in Christianity have been the left behind books, right? This is a group of fictional books that interpreted scripture based off of an interpretation of the end times that a lot of people hold. A lot of good Bible-believing, faithful Christians hold this particular view of the end times. But there's a lot of Bible-believing Christians who have different opinions on that as well. But what happened is these books got so popular in the culture, especially within churches, that it kind of became established fact, this is what we think about the end times, and if you don't agree with this, then you don't believe in inerrancy. And a lot of people are going, wait, wait, hold on. No, I I do believe in inerrancy, but wait, I see something differently here. But it kind of becomes established doctrine. This was going on here in Luke. Um, You know, Jesus was coming claiming to be the Messiah. And the kind of settled belief that everyone thought about the Messiah, all right, before Jesus arrived, because remember, there's about 400 years between our two Testaments, between the Old and New Testaments, about 400 years. That's a lot of time for some thoughts to be established about what the Messiah is. Uh, who he's going to be and what it's going to look like when he arrives. And so kind of the settled thought and belief is that this Messiah would be a political and military leader. Someone who was going to come and rescue Israel from Romans, uh, Rome's occupation. He was going to establish the kingdom of Israel, expand its territory, and it would look very tangible like that. That's obviously not Jesus, Right? Like, Jesus is very different. And so he's coming on the scene like, I'm the Messiah. And everyone's like, no, you're not. Like, no, that's not what the Messiah is going to look like. 
Well, what is that based off of? Well, that's based off what we've all said the Messiah is going to look like. But there's a gap between what they think God's word says and what it actually says. The people were committed to their interpretation more than they were committed to God's actual word. So let's keep going in our text. Last few chunks, last little chunk here, verse 33. It says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. That's our warning this morning. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So a little wordplay illustration here from Jesus. Essentially, he's saying the word of God is like a light, right? And your eye is the lamp of the body, meaning your eye is kind of what receives light, right? And what Jesus is basically saying here is he saying that if your eye is healthy, you're going to see the light clearly. If your eye is not healthy, it's going to appear dark or murky. Make sure that what you think you're seeing is actually the light and it's not darkness. It's kind of what Jesus is saying. That's verse 35. Make sure that what you think is the light is actually the light. It actually is the word of God. Before we break that down here, I just want to say, it is God's grace to us that he gives us his word. It's God's grace to us that he doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't make us guess what does it mean to have a relationship with him. He doesn't make us guess about who we are and who he is and why are we here He doesn't, you know, play around with us with riddles. No, he illumines these things for us. He gives us the light of his word. He tells us who he is. He tells us who we are. He tells us what has gone wrong in the world and what he is doing to redeem all of it. He tells us how we can repent of our sins and turn and trust in Christ for salvation. All of these things are things that he gives us. That is his grace to us. We don't have to guess at any of it. And so Jesus is just saying, make sure, make sure that what you see is actually the light and it's not darkness. And so the the question that we have for us this morning just briefly is how? How do we heed this warning from Jesus? And so I have a couple of thoughts for us, but here's the primary one, and that's this. How How do we protect ourselves from this gap? How do we as a church protect ourselves from this gap? And I think the primary way that we do that is that we must be a church that is more committed to unity than we are committed to uniformity. We must be a church that is more committed to unity than we are uniformity. What does that mean? Three points, then we're done. How do we be more committed to unity than uniformity? Point number one, that's this. We need to be, as a church, as individuals, we need to be 
actively committed to the word of God. Actively committed to the word of God. I'm going to read a scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Look at what this says about the word. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says the word of God is living and active. What that doesn't mean is the word of God changes. That doesn't mean that. The word of God does not change. God does not change. It's not subject to the ebb and flow of culture or the ebb and flow of what's trendy or the thoughts of the day. The word of God does not change, but it is living and active. And what that means is the word of God has the ability to always speak in fresh, slicing, good, convicting ways to us. All right, I've been preaching the Bible for a long time. I've read it cover to cover several times. I have a bachelor's degree in it, a master's degree in it, and I still have moments where I read something and I go, I have never seen that before. You ever have that moment with God's word? You go, that, that's never struck me before this text. But now for some reason, I'm like, I've been reading this thing for years and I, I'm, that's the first time I'm, it feels like I'm seeing it. That's because the word of God is able to speak to things in your life in very specific opportune kind of ways. And so what it means to have an active commitment to the word of God, it means that we're always reading, always studying. We're always open to what it has to say. We always have this humility where we go, you know what? I know it's very possible for me to think the word of God says something and it's different than what it actually says. And I'm always open to when the word of God is going to bring some correction. I'm always open when the word of God is gonna bring some new illumination that I've never seen before. That's my attitude with the scriptures. I'm always standing under the word of God and seeking to receive. I've never arrived, right? I've never gotten to this point where I'm like, I got it. I've read this thing like 10 times, cover to cover. I got it all. No, like we are actively committed to the word of God. And that's opposed to being passively committed to the word of God. And I think what passive commitment to the word of God is, is when we have a high view of scripture, meaning we believe in these doctrines of inerrancy and sufficiency and all of those things, but we don't actively pursue it. We have a high view of scripture, but we stop studying. We have a high view of scripture, but we're not really open to maybe how the word of God could correct us. And so what happens is we go, yeah, I believe in the word of God, but big gaps begin to form. Huge ones. And you go, I believe in what this says, but because we're not actively committed to it, there's a lot of things that we think it says that it doesn't say. Passive commitment to the word of God comes from a desire to seek out uniformity, not unity, All right? And that leads us to the second point here. The second point here is this, is that we must not be allergic to diverse voices. The word of God is what we unite around, but we must not be allergic to diverse voices. Now, let me give a few caveats, what I mean by this, because I know it makes some people nervous. What I don't mean is that we need to be open to diverse voices that have a lower view of scripture. That's not what I mean. 
right? We need to have diverse voices that all have the same active commitment to the word of God and high view of God's word. What I also don't mean by this is that we need to invite diverse voices that uh, don't have any respect for the creeds and confessions. We are a confessional church. What that means is, is that we hold to historic creeds and confessions that the church has formed through history and defining what is right belief, right? And we have respect for those. We look back to those as some sort of authority, not the highest authority. So I'm not saying we dismiss that either. And what I'm also not saying is that we invite diverse voices that have different thoughts or opinions or perspectives on primary doctrines. So primary doctrines are things that we cannot disagree on as the church, right? Doctrines like the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. Doctrines like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way to salvation and a few others. I'm not saying we invite voices in that disagree with those. But here is what I'm saying. It is possible to have an active commitment to the word of God, to have respect for the confessions, to agree on the primary doctrines, and have different perspectives on a whole lot of things. A whole lot of things. I mean, if we look to the Jews in our text this morning, like they, they high view of Scripture they were waiting for the Messiah. They knew a Messiah was going to come, bring the kingdom of God that was happening in their midst. They weren't open to a diverse voice, someone like John the Baptist, right? The weird guy in the wilderness that eats bugs coming out and saying, guys, he's here, prepare the way. Repent, the, the Messiah's here. And they're like, that doesn't look like the Messiah. They weren't open to a diverse voice. Or, or I look to the early church in Acts they were open to a diverse voice by a guy named Paul who used to persecute them but then came to faith in Christ. His life was changed. And then he came on and he said, guys, listen, this gospel's not just for the Jews. It's for the whole world. And they're like, huh, we got to think about that. So they had a little council called the Jerusalem Council. You can read about it in Acts. And they go, yeah, Paul, you're right. This thing is for the whole world. We should go and preach this gospel to everybody. And Paul's like, yeah, it's what Jesus told us to do. Right? If they weren't open to those diverse voices, the church doesn't explode and expand like it does in the book of Acts. If we don't invite diverse voices, if we're allergic to them, all while sitting under the same doctrines of Scripture, then we will be blind to the gaps. The gaps of, we think God's word says something, but it actually says something different. It's possible to be unified around the word of God, but have different perspectives on a whole lot of things, right? It's possible for our church to be unified and to love each other and to worship together and have different perspectives on all kinds of things, like different perspectives on education and in the schools that we should send our kids to or perspectives on what we should be eating or perspectives on things like vaccines or perspectives on things like politics or whatever it is. We can have different perspectives on a whole lot of things and still be unified around Scripture. It's not glorifying to God when a church values uniformity around secondary and tertiary matters. 
A church with an active commitment to the word of God, always studying, always sitting under it, always seeking to learn, and a church that will invite diverse voices and have good conversation is a church that will be on guard against the gap and will glorify God because we're united on his word. That leads me to point number three, and that's just this. So that means we must stick together, right? How do we be on guard against this gap? We need to be actively committed to the word. We need to not be allergic by diverse voices. And we, then we need to stick together. Too often nowadays, we give up on one another because we value uniformity over unity. I mean, we all feel this cancel culture has just infiltrated every institution of our society, including the church. And what God wants in the church, he wants the wrestling. He wants the diverse voices to to come in and he wants us to wrestle around what does God's word say? Actively committed. I actually don't think we can be actively committed to the word if we're not wrestling, seeking to grow, seeking where there might be gaps. So I wanted to end our time reading from Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I think it's so clear the way it translates this text. This is the vision that God has for the church. This is the vision that God has for Grace Hill Church. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 11 to 16. Right, Paul says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. The building up of the church, it's not done just by the pastors. It's a work that all of us are called to, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to where? To such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, right? It's this picture of growth. We're not there yet. We all need to grow, to be built up, to find the gaps. We need to wrestle together, unified around the world, around the word as we grow to maturity. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever. They sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, wrestle, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Who does that? Not us. He does. As we stick together, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other part grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This vision that God has for the church given to us by Paul cannot be realized if we don't fight for you. It cannot be realized if we demand uniformity. And this is what we'll do at Grace. 
This is the kind of church that we want to be. We always want to have an active commitment to what God's word says, holding it up and saying, what does it have to say? What instruction do I need? What encouragement do I need? What rebuke do I need? You know, all the, all the time, active commitment to the word of God. We will not be allergic to diverse voices because we think they make us stronger and they help us point out the gaps. And we will stick together as a church as we live and honor God and seek to proclaim his gospel to a culture all around us that doesn't want to hear So, Grace Hill, let me pray for us right now. Let me pray that, that God would fulfill this vision that we just got from Ephesians chapter 4. And Grace Hill, let's pray. God, I'm going to confess to you just when I read that scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, it seems so idealistic to me. The whole body of Christ working together, the whole body of Christ fighting for maturity of one another, building each other up, speaking the truth in love. Lord, I'll admit, I, sometimes it's hard to see if the church can actually accomplish that. But God, I've, I've seen you do it here. I've seen people do that here. And I've seen people, all of us, myself included, being built up in love built up in the word of God. And so God, I pray you would protect our church from gaps. You would protect us from having a passive commitment to the word of God. Where we have a high view of scripture, yes, it's what our statement of faith says, but we're never testing what we believe. God, I just pray that you would lead us. Lead us to be unified around your word. Lead us to be open to the diverse voices in our midst. Lead us to wrestle and fight for unity and maturity. So God, I pray you would do this work in our midst. I pray, God, you would strengthen this church. I pray, God, that you would prepare us for the task and the mission that you have prepared for us uh, that's ahead of us, God, as we seek to minister this word to each other and the neighbors around us. We love you, God, and we ask these things. Jesus' name.